Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Your weekly movement news roundup. Give the people what they want. Brought to you by People's Dispatch. That's Zoe. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. We really do miss Prashant, but we hope he'll come back and join us again soon. Um, we're coming close to 150th episode. We'll talk about that later. Here's the situation. Almost three weeks into this um, murderous attack by the Israelis on Gaza, on the Palestinians in Gaza, no let up. Israeli tanks enter the northern rim of Gaza, testing the defenses of Hamas, uh, wondering exactly what is possible for a land invasion, uh, checking to see if there is going to be any kind of uh, opening for Israel to break right through. Looks like they're going to face considerable resistance. Stunningly, the Gaza Ministry of Health re released uh, the numbers over 7,500 people um, dead in, in Gaza, Palestinians killed in Gaza. The Israeli government decided it was just about time to say, well, we don't trust those numbers. The U.S. government followed the Israelis and said, well, we don't trust the numbers either. In comes the Gaza Ministry of Health. They release a list of 6,747 names of people, including their ID numbers. Now, this is significant. IDs in Gaza are given by the Israeli government. Gaza is <laughs> under Israeli occupation. So these are Israeli ID numbers. They are easy to verify. In this list, the Gaza Ministry of Health said 2,665 children killed. Now, these are the numbers in terms of what has been established. Many more dead, of course, dying every hour. There is no let up to the bombardment. Journalists killed. Zoe Alexander and I have a piece up at Counterpunch um, detailing the murder of journalists, the children and families of journalists targeted. I saw this in Iraq as well. Al Jazeera reporters, Tariq Ayub, for instance, um, on uh, his uh, duty at the Al Jazeera office, missile strike, and he was killed. That was in 2003. Um, much the same happening now coordinates of offices and homes given to the Israelis, those offices and homes being targeted, assassination of journalists, murder of people in Gaza, the land war, any minute now. Must say, no word yet from Hassan Nasrallah of Hezbollah. Any day now when Mr. Nasrallah speaks, it will be a declaration of war. Missiles will rain down on Tel Aviv, which is why about 150,000 Israelis have been evacuated from the northern regions of Israel. This has all the elements of becoming a major regional confrontation. On Give the People What They Want, we're happy to have with us a guest host. That's Mika Erskog joining us um, this time and hopefully several more times. She is filling in for Prashant. Very big shoes to fill in, Mika. Tell us on the African continent, how are people reacting to this terrible conflict taking place, the bombardment of, of the Palestinians in Gaza? 
Thank you so much for inviting me and I hope you can hear me, correct? Yes. Uh, so it's an interesting situation because we have, of course, a lot of reporting around the divisions in Africa, the so-called divisions in Africa around the situation, but the historical position of a lot of African leaders, of course, has been around pro-Palestinians because at the end of the day, we have experienced very similar processes of colonization, oppression, displacement. And so I find it very interesting that the reporting has kind of, maybe it hasn't come across in the rest of the world, but has been seen as divisions when in fact, I think it's more or less about the most progressive position being amongst all African leaders because we have experienced a similarity. We saw in South Africa, many people might have seen that there's not only a groundswell from the masses, but also the government has a strong position against it. And I think that what is kind of uh, interesting is that the leaders who came up to speak first, who have been cited, was the Kenya, the um, Ruto government, condemned the invasion of Hamas and spoke about supporting Israel, but it has a very clear link to their recent support uh, or interest in being part of the US aligned group in Africa. But for the most part, we have Algeria, we have all the big countries who are coming out against um, the Israeli bombardment and annihilation and right now even though we've had i think the ukraine invasion moment kind of shifted the politics and everyone is kind of scrambling around what they should do by and large most african leaders most african people are against the israeli invasion or the recent attacks and it has been interesting to track how people uh interact with and kind of what the trend is, I guess we would say, because right now um, in the African Union, there is a lot of division because there isn't a lot of coherency around what the Pan-African project is. And one of the things has been, for example, a few years ago, why is it that Israel has an observer status in the African Union? That's a huge question that we don't understand, but the likes of South Africa, Naledi Pando, the foreign minister spoke recently about this, that there's been a constant pushback against this. And unfortunately, because of the underdevelopment of Africa, we have sought, and we, I mean, not me personally, but the continent has sought certain forms of technological exchange and development with Israel. And Israel has been making a concerted effort in Kenya and Tanzania, in Ghana and Ghana, uh, Tanzania, Kenya, I think have been, the countries have had the, not the largest trade, that's with South Africa, but have had serious scientific developments. And so we understand why the governments might sway to support Israel very quickly, but by and large, the African population doesn't support any form of oppression of Palestine, and they continue to push for their governments, who most of them by and large are standing in support of the Palestinian resistance. African governments on two stools, uh, one side looking towards Israel, the other looking to their populations, quite resolute 
in their support for the Palestinians increasingly as this bombardment continues. Joey, a familiar tale for the United States. More and more people in the United States seem quite in despair about what's happening in Gaza. Meanwhile, the government has decided um, let's stop people from speaking out for the Palestinians. What's been happening? Well, the U.S. and the U.S. population, it has to be said, has been a bastion of support uh, for the Zionist project, for Israel. The U.S. is uh, the largest uh, supporter of military aid, of military funding to Israel, a beautiful kind of back and forth relationship with U.S. weapons companies. Uh, but, and a lot of this has depended on the fact that the U.S. population has, has largely uh, not been uh, in support of the Palestinian cause and has really not you know, taken a strong stand, that has completely changed um, in this month. As we've talked about on our special shows, there has been an unprecedented level of mobilization in dozens of cities across the US, um, tens of thousands of people on the street, similar types of numbers that we were seeing during the 2020 uprising. As we mentioned on November 4th, there's a national march being planned in Washington. And uh, the response has been quite severe um, for example, yesterday, the Senate passed a resolution uh, that condemning Hamas and anti-Semitic student activities on college campuses. Um, this is essentially a direct attack to the outpouring of support that has been taking place across college campuses, across you know elite institutions, Harvard, MIT, Columbia, uh, places that not only uh, had been perhaps never spoken out against um, in a big way against uh, Israeli aggression, but also institutions that have deep institutional ties, um, both in terms of research cooperation, uh, in terms of uh, cooperation with professors and faculties in Israel. Um, these, are, these are key bastions, again, of support um, to the Zionist project. And students have been saying they're walking out, uh, they're passing resolutions in their student organizations, publishing statements, and the response again has been, for example, this resolution passed um, by the Senate unanimously. So that means every single US Senator thought it was okay to criminalize and essentially call student activists uh, supporters of terrorism. Um, that's on one hand, uh, but there also has been a, a serious backlash from this extremely you know, out of touch Zionist lobby um, that is not understanding the mood of the people in the country right now. And so we've seen, for example, at uh, Harvard and Columbia campuses, um, a lot of money being spent to drive trucks around uh, that have the faces of student activists on it and calling them the leading anti-Semites, which could not be further from the truth. And it's you know not that it's uh, that important to point out, but a lot of these SJP groups, the Students for Justice in Palestine, have a lot of Jewish members in them, um, understanding, of course, that anti-Zionism within the Jewish community is growing day by day in a uh, kind of massive level. So these really weak attacks, these tired attacks of calling anyone who's supporting Palestine uh, an anti-Semite, and now even extending this to a supporter of terrorism is extremely worrying, but also, again, is showing the fact that this Zionist lobby uh, the U.S. government, which so desperately needs to hold on to um, Israel and having that, uh, you know, geopolitical ally and so many and for so many other reasons, this ally um, in West Asia, uh, they're clearly getting desperate 
And what's evident in the past couple of weeks is that uh, the people of the US will not stand for their government sending billions of dollars in military aid, not only while Israel is carrying out a what many are calling a genocidal massacre of the Palestinian people, but at the same time that there's a Democratic Party government that is cutting healthcare, that's cutting social spending, and we're seeing people in worse economic situations than they have been in recent history. So at the same time that people are being told, you can't have Medicare anymore, you can't have Medicaid anymore, um, actually we're gonna send billions of dollars to fund the, the slaughter of Palestinians um, and the continuation of wars across the world. So it's it's a real watershed moment and they're responding as they do with cowardice and with desperation. It's a watershed moment, yes indeed. The Israelis continue to pummel Gaza tanks, making a little foray into the northern part of the Gaza Strip. United States government sending more weapons. United States government saying that its population cannot exercise their democratic right to condemn the war. You're listening to Give the People What They Want, brought to you by People's Dispatch. That's Zoe. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. Very happy to have Mika with us from The Crane, um, a pod, Pan-Africanist podcast that um, you can listen to very soon, actually. Um, we're coming back in our 147th show. We got a little bit of time left to talk about some other things other than Gaza, which is difficult to do. It's hard to focus on news outside that very small strip of land where 2.3 million people are desperately trying to survive. On the other hand, there are events happening elsewhere. Um, we're going to first go to Argentina. Zoe, back to you. Tell us those elections in Argentina. A curious, curious result. Well, yes, we're back to Latin American elections. We can't hide from it. And we're here. But again, a very surprising result. We had been covering this on Give the People What They Want and, uh, you know, very consistent People's Dispatch website about this very, very uh, scary prospect of a Javier Millet presidency in Argentina. Um, in the primary elections that were held in August in Argentina, which again are non-binding elections, but um, decide who's going to run, who's going to be the candidate in coalitions, and if people receive enough votes to actually continue to the general elections. Uh, Javier Millet had received the most votes out of all the presidential candidates. And this moment of this libertarian, very bizarre uh, candidate who is calling for um, taking away abortion rights, who wants to uh, dissolve the central bank, who wants to essentially cut all ministries and all public functioning and institutions in Argentina. Um, him coming in first in August in the primaries was a serious wake up call um, to the people of Argentina, to the other candidates, the political parties, to the center, largely to the right as well, uh, that if he actually did come to power and, and implemented dollarization and all of these other uh, proposals that would seriously shake um, the future of Argentina, uh, that this would be a big problem. And again, not just for working class people, but also for big business um, and for economic power in the country. So since August, there's been <clears throat> significant moves by, for example, the progressive uh, Peronista candidate, Sergio Massa, who's currently economy minister, uh, to address 
kind of the deficit in votes that they faced in the first round. Again, they, uh, uh, they in these past elections on Sunday, they did not receive enough votes to win in the first round, but Sergio Massa did receive uh, way more votes than he did in the primary elections. He came in first, he got uh, just around 37% of the votes, um, polling seven points again ahead of, Ser of uh, Javier Millet. Um, this is this voucher is likely to increase in the second round of elections, which will be held in November. Uh, Patricia Bolric, who is the traditional right, she did not win enough votes to go on to the second round, uh, and she has expressed that she will support Javier Millet. However, the right wing is not united in their support of uh, the libertarian candidate, um, and it will remain to be seen about how this center right block actually divides up their votes um, in the coming, in the runoff election. So it's a very interesting moment from Argentina. I think also the comments by Millet to completely deny uh, the genocide that happened during um, the military dictatorship where 30,000 people were detained and disappeared. Um, he came out and said that this number is wrong, that human rights organizations are spreading fake news and that they're just trying to get foreign funds you know, this whole denialist discourse was also a really uh, groundbreaking moment. I think people really understood just how big of a threat this was. Uh, the Argentinian people have fought very hard for the democracy and the rights that they have. Um, and one kind of takeaway is that there's some rights that the people are not okay, that people will stand up to defend access to healthcare, access to education. Argentina is one of the few countries um, in the world today where higher education is completely free, anyone can enter to higher, uh, to university. You have to just, uh, you know, maintain your, you have to continue passing your classes, uh, but there's no entrance exam. Um, these are, these are crucial victories that Argentina has won. And I think that we're going to see going into the second round, Sergio Massa will continue to try to use his role as economy minister to really address the primary concern facing the people of Argentina, which is inflation, which is their salaries, which is the economic crisis, which has rocked 40% of the population, which finds itself living below the poverty line. So again, interesting results, Javier Millet, not the lion that he claimed to be, um, and he's now being forced to pander to other sections, maybe watering down some of his program to get the support that he would need to actually win the elections in the second round. Well, it would be interesting to see if, if Mr. Libertarian wins that election, what it's going to mean for Argentina's role in South American integration, for its membership in the BRICS, which will start in January and so on. We're going to move on and give the people what they want to two disasters. First, floods in Ghana and then earthquakes in Afghanistan. My number of people dead in Afghanistan. Before we get to that, Mika, tell us a little bit about those floods in Ghana. Sure. So I think one is that 4,000 people have been displaced by what they call the dam spillage, which refers to the overflowing of water that was not expected or it wasn't precedented. But what is interesting is, of course, in all the reporting, this is devastating for those 4,000 people plus who have been affected by the situation. But very little has been spoken about the fact that what, what has caused the spillage what is the f the situation around maintenance? The uh, Akosombo uh, Dam was created as part of a project under the Nkrumah government. And part of the project was, it was a huge, I think one of the largest 
dam um, infrastructural projects to happen in the 60s, the early 60s. And part of the aim of this project was how can we resolve the needs of the people? And so it was very multidimensional. It was about, you know, not only water needs, it was about energy needs. It was about how can we restructure the fishing? How can we restructure um, the tourist industry? And so after the coup that happened in, if I'm not mistaken, 67, late 60s against uh, Nkrumah, this project that also generated a lot of um, renewable energy electricity that you know, went not only to Togo and Benin, but also helped to power a lot of the Ghanaian um, people's needs, hasn't been maintained in the last few years. So we have this, what is being called, you know, a spillage versus a flood that devastates, um, you know, thousands of people's lives. And uh, little has been reported around the fact that why is the spillage happening? It's a lot of unpredicted, we didn't foresee this, we, but it's basically they don't have the monitoring capacity to predict it, supposedly. And we have to ask the question, why didn't we have the capacity to do those kinds of predictions? And of course, it goes back. This is why I raised Ghana's old history with Kwame Nkrumah is that we have to ask the questions, why is it that we are unable to have the infrastructure to monitor the various systems that we have produced to try to improve people's lives? And that, of course, is a longer conversation about neocolonialism, but nonetheless, um, the people who have been displaced, the people who have been affected, the houses that have been destroyed, um, has to do a little bit with the, a little bit, a lot of it, with the historical legacy of colonialism and the fact that a year ago, the Ghanaian government was taking a huge loan from the IMF, which will largely go to them having to pay back a lot of their debts, not necessarily dealing with these specific needs of having to make sure that we have maintenance on the dam itself and we have the various infrastructure to ensure that if there is a natural disaster or a change in climate, that we can appropriately measure it before it affects the people. So this is part of the issue that I think the Ghanaian people are facing right now. It's a very tragic story and it's tragedies like this that make you think, hey, listen, there's a history to it. You need to understand it. Um, this doesn't just come from quote unquote nature. Um, in Afghanistan, a stunning series of earthquakes in Herat province, up to 4,000 people dead. Remarkably, 90% of them women and children, 90% of those killed in the earthquakes in Herat. Relatively underreported, um, pretty stunning that there's been almost no reporting on this catastrophic set of earthquakes, not just one. Um, why are 90% of the dead women and children the earthquake took place, the first and then the cascading series. The first took place at 11 a.m. Now, that's interesting. Most of the men in this largely rural part of Herat province were out in the fields. Um, they were out working. As a consequence of the Taliban strictures against women being in places of work, many of the women and children were at home. So when their houses collapsed on them, they died. 90% of them dead, women and children. Um, the 10% mostly elderly men who were at home again and fell under the rubble. Very hard 
for aid agencies to get there. Afghanistan has a population of 43 million. United Nations says that about 30 million of them require aid and assistance out of 43 million. That's one of the highest rates of assistance in the world. Um, this aid and assistance has been made difficult with the Taliban in power. Taliban is trying to say we want to be um, you know, sustainable. We don't want to take foreign aid too much and so on. Secondly, over the years, um, many aid workers in places like Afghanistan, many Afghan aid workers have been women. Um, large number of them in areas of social welfare, distribution of goods and services, care for women and the elderly and children and so on. Um, Taliban has banned women from working in aid agencies, uh, which has meant, of course, that the structure of transmission of aid has been greatly disrupted. You can't just, you know, substitute the woman who worked for an aid agency with a man and say, get to work. There are skills, there is expertise, there are habits of work and so on that have been there over the last period. And therefore, Afghanistan is struggling uh, to maintain its aid agencies, its response to something as devastating as this earthquake. Um, at the same time, government of Pakistan threatened to deport um, a large number of, 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 um, of Afghan nationals who have been in uh, Pakistan. The United Nations warning that these deportations must not go on for two reasons. One, um, they must not go on because they are going to be terrible for um, the people returning. Se several of them have dissidents and so on. Um, they are not capable of having a free entry into Afghanistan. Secondly, um, many of the people would be going back to provinces in Herat, the sixth district hit in Herat, and that is catastrophic. The country cannot absorb people right now. A terrible, terrible situation in Afghanistan. We're going to come back and do some more uh, reporting on give the people what they want about Afghanistan. It's worth mentioning that in previous earthquakes in Pakistan and indeed in Afghanistan, um, the first aid agencies that came with medical training were from Cuba. The Cuban doctors are uh, coming there, helping out and so on. Cuba, of course, the United States decided is a terrorist country. It has it on its state sponsors of terrorism list. As we know, the only thing the Cubans have done in Pakistan during that catastrophic earthquake about 15 years ago and in Afghanistan is export doctors, health workers, uh, state sponsors of healthcare rather than terrorism. Worthwhile to keep in mind right now in Gaza, those hospitals, they could use a few Cuban doctors. Although I must say, the Palestinians of Gaza are highly trained people, lots of doctors, lots of nurses, lots of ambulance drivers. They just don't have fuel. They can't run their ambulances. They can't run their hospitals. They can't power their incubators. You're listening to Give the People What They Want, brought to you from People's Dispatch. That's Zoe. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. Grateful to have Mika with us today as a guest host in place of Prashant. Coming up to our 150th show, Keep an eye out for that. We might even threaten to have an hour-long show. See you next week. Over.